Welcome to SOS Media Podcast. Today is a very special episode as we're recording our podcast in front of a live audience here at the University of Cambridge at the Cambridge Union. We are thrilled and honored to be speaking with Dr. Lilia Juni, who is a fellow here at the University of Cambridge for Social Innovation, and she is also the CEO and co-founder of GenPol, a gender equality think tank and consultancy. Outside of being a fellow and running GenPol, Lilia is a passionate activist for gender equality, which brings us to today's topic. Today's topic is on what role can men play in gender equality and gender activism. So thanks for tuning in, and please follow us, Jimpole, and our generous sponsor, the Cambridge Center for Social Innovation, on all the social media, Facebook, Instagram, uh, Twitter, all the like. So thanks again for tuning in, and we hope you enjoy the podcast. So without further ado, let's get into it. Gender equality is obviously a topic that is, has a lot of different intersectionalities. So, and, and depending on where you are in the world or what country you might live in, people might have a different perception or different perspective of what gender equality actually means. So in, in your words, can you tell us a little bit uh, from your expertise what, uh, what gender equality is? Uh, absolutely. Uh, so I think my all-time favorite definition of gender equality work is gender equality work is uh, working to establish the radical notion that women are people. So literally, as simple as that. However, uh, I do think that gender equality means today very different things to different people. Uh, most definitions, I guess, would uh, kind of maintain the idea of uh, equal access to opportunities and resources, regardless of gender. However, I think there are a couple of important caveats to, to bear in mind. Uh, so first of all, should we be talking of uh, equality of opportunities or equality of outcomes? Should we be talking about formal equality or substantial equality? Uh, and that's really crucial because uh, one could argue that today, uh, at least across the Western world, uh, uh, equal access to opportunities across most industries and organizations is institutionally granted. However, I guess the questions we should be asking uh, ourselves or others, so, have we really got rid of gender-based violence? Are sexual and reproductive rights truly really recognized and uh, implemented uh, across the world? What are we doing about the gender pay gap? Are women, uh, people of all genders, equally represented uh, in society, in the economic world, in the arts and culture? Clearly not. Uh, and beyond this, uh, as you mentioned, there's obviously uh, the, the institutionality issue. So obviously, women and men and people of all genders are not the same, their experiences are not the same. Uh, so being uh, non-white, non-cisgender, uh, non-straight, non-fully able, working class is really likely to provide uh, different layers of complexity uh, to uh, the experiences of discrimination and oppression that uh, people and women especially might go through. That, that definitely makes a lot of sense. And I, I just, so, with that, bearing that in mind, that definition in mind, what, what does the world have to gain from a more gender equal world? That might seem like a very common sense question, but if, if the world was more gender equal, what would we stand to gain? Mm -hmm. I kind of knew that it would have asked this question because uh, it is one I get asked all the time. And the truth is, I tend to answer it differently uh, depending on the audience. So the most obvious natural kind of visceral answer would be well, we should be working towards a more gender equal world because it's a 
ethically and morally and politically right because uh, women's rights are human rights and so on and so forth. Uh, however, I do think that tactically and strategically we have so much to gain from conveying uh, uh, the idea that everyone, society as a whole, starts to gain from uh, a more gender equal world. And I think there's two key points to be made there. One is the so-called uh, kind of business case behind gender equality, an expression which personally I very much dislike. But I do think that you know, if you look simply at stats of women's employment in and employment or you know, how many of them are uh, occupied in menial work around the world, and just do some simple maths, some so quick dirty calculations and hypotheses about uh, how much society would gain from really making the most of all this uh, unleashed potential, this kind of pipeline on talents and uh, the spillovers that this would really bring about in, in this women's community. Well, you know, you clearly have a very strong argument there. But I think there is a, another nuance that we get to, we would need to get straight, and uh, this is something I'm truly passionate about, and one of the many reasons why uh, I was excited to have this conversation with you today. I do strongly believe that everyone, women and men and people of all gender, are deeply harmed by the current state of things, uh, by the, the existing patterns of, of inequalities, by uh, the patriarchal society we live in. So just think of uh, you know, the huge amount of pressures men, especially young boys in their childhood and their teenage, are exposed to uh, when they feel obliged to, to conform, to, to meet particular standards of masculinity. Yeah, that's really interesting. And I, you know, I mean, from my conversations, I was having a conversation with this person the other day, um, and <clears throat> they were saying that, you know, and it was a really a, a shocking statistic, but that literally every economy in the world has can gain because, especially in emerging markets where half the workforce isn't even employed, if you bring them into the economy, you not only increase livelihoods, but you also increase uh, purchasing power and GDP and etc. Um, that's really interesting. So, I mean, what brings us here today is what role can men play uh, in gender equality? And so, as, as an anecdote, so I'm on the tube the other day. Uh, and I overhear two men talking about gender equality, and they were arguing about its merits back and forth. Um, yeah. <laughs> and uh, yeah, so the, one guy was saying um, effectively that he doesn't understand what the big deal is about gender equality. He doesn't understand why women have it so difficult because he was saying, well, in my university, uh, men and women were, were equally represented. He said, when I was looking for jobs, I was competing against women. And he said, I'm on a team of all women, or pre predominantly women. So for this type of skeptic, why is it important to bring him or other men that have that mindset into this conversation? Hmm. Fair enough. I think, once again, it's a crucial question. And actually, I'm very glad you asked it, because uh, yesterday I was doing some prep for this conversation. I was trying to think of what are the best ways to really convey the message that everyone has to, uh, to gain from more gender equal work. So what I did was uh, to write down a list of examples, just literally as they came. Examples to be divided into two sets. So the first set shows that gender inequality and uh, male privilege are a thing. They still exist. The second set of examples, though, show how much men themselves are deeply harmed by the existence of a, of a gender unequal world. 
Could you, do you mind if I go for my test? Go for it. Alright, so, on May privilege. I would say that, unlike women, men are allowed to be angry, to be bossy, to be competitive, to take space, to walk without fear down the street at night, to have sex with multiple partners without being stigmatized, to wear very little, if they so wish, to age and still be considered attractive, to shout, and not to take care of the way they look. They're not constantly expected to speak on behalf uh, of their entire gender, of the whole of manhood. They're likely to be paid more, more likely to be hired for jobs across several industries, or to be promoted by male and female managers alike. They're more likely to be selected to run for office, to gain visibility for their art, and to be represented in powerful programs. Uh, obviously, there is a caveat here, so many of the last points tend to apply, provided that these men are white, fully able, and normally being straight and middle class, helps too. But, at the same time, men can't wear skirts or dresses, they can't dress up as a princess, they so wish, they can't have a decent paternity leave, they can't use makeup if they so want, they are criticized if they kick, run, speak, dance, like a girl. Even more importantly, they are not allowed or told to speak of their emotions, to show weakness and vulnerability, to cry in public. They are also likely to be stigmatized if they want to stay home with their kids, if they earn less than their female partners, or do not make enough money, simply, if they are introvert, if they say no to sex with a woman or are not attracted to her. They're not allowed to say no to a drink when a friend invites them to the pub. And when I was writing this list, I actually thought of a very interesting episode which uh, was uh, said to me by someone who's actually sitting in this room, uh, a very established uh, management professor, who shall not be named. So <laughs> he is actually Scottish, and he was telling me that he would never enter a Scottish pub and order half a pound. Why this would be completely acceptable for me. So what do you think of my list? I think it's a pretty robust list. <laughs> <laughs> and, and so that's so where would you say that, that the origins of these things come from? Because I think you know if I reflect on my own experience uh, growing up in the southern United States, uh, you know, a lot of the biases that have been ingrained in me have come from the environment, have come from the culture uh, and like to one of the points on your list, you know, it was always men don't cry. If you fall, you pick yourself up, you dust yourself off, and you don't show weakness. And so, like, wh what are the effects of that on on men? Like being able to only show your emotions in, in right. or box up your emotions in See, certain states. You're asking about kind of uh, emotional management slash emotional labor, correct? Yeah. And the effect on mental health. That would be that would correct. be correct. If if you, okay. if you don't, could you could you define for us what emotional labor is? Yeah. Yeah. Absolutely. Okay. Um, so let me kind of distinguish the two. Uh, so emotional management, as uh, I'm sure people in the room know, uh, is all about the ideas of uh, managing the emotions and feelings that all of us as uh, human beings experience. However, while feelings and emotions, including uh, uh, those which are normally constructed as negative, so anger and sadness and so on, are all natural and neutral, just kind of perfectly normal ways to, to process what happens to us in lives, then there's a lot to be said about the ways in which we teach 
uh, children, young boys and young girls to, to manage these emotions. So I think uh, anger is uh, an interesting one. And the sense that all human beings obviously uh, experience anger. However, on average, we tend to train uh, young girls to repress anger, not to show it, not to take space, not to shout, to behave nicely, to be cute and nice. While, however, we teach young boys uh, to, to express anger uh, in ways which are not always healthy, uh, in ways which can be aggressive or violent or competitive and so on. Uh, in, instead, when it comes to uh, emotional labor, so the idea is that, once again, all of us as human beings uh, uh, need to be, to be reassured, need to be listened to, uh, need to be appreciated, to be loved, and so on. So these are all perfectly acceptable needs. However, in our gender society, uh, we tend to, to allocate this task to women, to mothers, to sisters, to wives, to girlfriends, uh, uh, female friends, uh, and, and so on. On the assumption that women might be naturally better than men at emotional management and therefore at emotional labor. And uh, I suppose you, know, uh, you can tell by yourself how problematic this is in the sense that this means that uh, not only women have more and more on their plate because they will have to perform this emotional labor for all uh, the men in their lives, but men not having been taught, not having been allowed to express their emotions to process them, uh, to show them in ways which are perfectly natural, such as crying, uh, uh, might simply not be able to perform emotional labor for themselves, or maybe for their main friends or main relations. It's definitely an interesting point because, you know, as a, as a guy, you're always taught to, to hide your emotions and not show them in, in any way, shape or form. And, but when you bottle up emotions like that, they have to release at some point in time. So whether that be like uh, derogatory statements, whether that be crime, whether that be mental health uh, issues that, I mean, do you think that, not that there's a direct one-to-one -one causation, but do you, do you see a correlation between um, men being brought up in systemic structures or socialized in such a way that tell them that they have to fit in these small square boxes that society has defined, that because they, don't, they can't be a regular kid, like, it's okay to cry if you're five years old, or, you know, if it you're 35 years old, yeah, yeah, 55, doesn't matter. Yeah, yeah. But do you think that that, that is having an effect on, on men, whether consciously or subconsciously? Yes, absolutely. I think it does. Um, okay, so just as a way of introduction, and I know some kind of fellow feminists would disagree uh, with me on this, but I think it's important to mention it. I do believe that uh, some differences exist uh, between people who are you know, identify this bird as male or female. And these differences tend to lie in a you know, men's greater size or speed, on average, obviously, and in a biological women's capacity to bear and feed children, right? At the same time, uh, so many additional differences which did not exist in nature are created and are perpetuated by socialization processes, by the way we uh, raise young boys and young girls and you know, young people of all gender. So yeah, I completely agree with you on that. Now, uh, as you're asking me what effect do I think this has, specifically on uh, male mental health and on um, uh, you know, the way men behave in society, uh, once again, I think there's two main things to be said. First of all, on male mental health, this is something I'm really passionate about, the kind of intersection between gender and mental health, and this is because I think there's a lot of confusion down there. 
So people often tell me, oh, you know, how about men's fears struggling with mental health issues? How about uh, scary male suicide rates and so on? Uh, this is all true. However, what's sometimes missing from the picture is that women do also struggle with mental health. However, their struggles are different. So studies show, for example, that men uh, tend to struggle with A, fear of rejection, uh, B, difficulty to manage anger, and C, as a result of A and B, with depression. While women tend, on average, to struggle more with anxiety, uh, with imposter syndrome, uh, with fear of not being enough, and so on and so forth. The society issue, I, I also think, uh, is interesting in the sense that what many people do not know is that, yes, statistically men are more likely than women to try to, well, sorry, to actually kill themselves. But when you look at women who try to commit suicide but are stopped before doing that, actually kind of break even, and that's because uh, women are more likely to try to kill themselves in ways which are not going to uh, destroy their bodies or make them look not nice. Uh, so absolutely this is not to deny in any way uh, the, the impact that uh, in gender norms and gender stereotypes and gender socialization processes have on men and their mental health. At the same time, I think it's important that we get the nuances right and we show that literally everyone, men and women, and people of all gender are harmed by this. And then my last point would be on uh, gender and crime. Uh, because this is something people often touch upon when people try to ask me, you know, how do we demonstrate that gender equality is uh, you know, generally good for the world, for society as a whole, and blah, blah, blah. crime tends to come into the picture. People tend to say, well, statistically, we can see uh, that men commit more crime than women. Why is that? Is that because they're naturally more violent? Blah, blah, blah. So, interestingly enough, I'm um, actually doing a research project on uh, the gender side of Southern Italian Mafia. I'm from Southern Italy, so it's something which is quite close to my heart. And uh, what I'm finding out is that, although obviously there's nothing inherently violent about being a man, there's so much to be said about the specific notions and understandings of toxic masculinities which are encoded in the Southern Italian communities. Uh, so young men feel attracted to, to mafia-like groups because there's some, they feel there's something uh, deeply fascinating about being uh, a real, uh, hyper-viral uh, man. So I think, yeah, that's another interesting argument. Yeah, that, that is really interesting. And so in, in, the issue of gender equality has been uh, sort of omnipresent in yes. the media recently. Mm -hmm. uh, and, you know, there's been a number of movements, whether that be uh, Time's Up or Me Too or He for She. <laughs> um, and with He for She being the exception, uh, Traditionally, these conversations have been seen as a, f a female-only space where you can talk about, like only females talk about it in these uh, spaces or engage in these issues uh, in these spaces. So in terms of men getting involved, how is it that, that with he for she being the exception that men can actually start to engage? Like what does engagement look like um, to, to, to that regard? Uh, so what are you exactly asking me? Are you asking me why should men get involved or how? How should men okay. properly get involved? Okay, okay. Um, I think there's uh, several things uh, men can do, and it's important that, that they do. We need to, to bear in mind that 
that most men actually mean well. Uh, I had maybe been lucky in my life, but with exceptions, uh, I met uh, you know, so many uh, perfectly nice, decent men who wrote about recognizing uh, and possibly promoting the gender equality in organizations and industries they were in. However, first, they didn't know how to do it. Second, they didn't quite feel that uh, feminist gender equality activist spaces were their place. They felt they kind of lack a psychological standing uh, and, uh, and so on. And third, I think very important to uh, point, however nice and well-meaning they were, uh, however unlikely they were to engage in, uh, in a sexist discrimination, let alone abuse themselves, uh, they wouldn't have necessarily called it out. So I guess what I'm trying to say is that there's something really powerful about training bystanders and male bystanders to intervene whenever it is that they uh, witness uh, gender inequality, discrimination, and, uh, and so on. So I think what many people tend to, uh, to say these days is that maybe a way to go around the problem that you were mentioning, the fact that you know, gender inequality spaces tend to be feminized, is to allow men to have peer-to-peer, male-only spaces in which they can engage in frank, open conversations uh, about what gender equality means to them. And here in the UK, especially, uh, there is a lot of buzz around uh, uh, male-only consent workshops. Some of them are given by uh, this Oxford organization called uh, the Good Lads Initiative, a bit of an unfortunate name, I think, but they do actually quite interesting work. Um, and I think the key question there is, uh, is it good or bad? Is it great because actually we are empowering men uh, to, to you know, have a honest conversation in a safe space? Or is it ultimately wrong because it reinforces gender segregation and perhaps kind of foster benign, benevolent sexism? Uh, I have to say, I do find this deeply particularly intriguing. I think that, uh, you know, single gender and gender mixed uh, Spaces can meet different needs at different times. So, as a matter of principle, I really think that we should be, we men, women, people of all gender, should be talking to each other more. So, I'm generally in favor of gender mixed spaces. However, I do see very well um, in specific instances uh, for a space to be safe, uh, it needs to be single gender. So, I'm thinking, for example, of um, you know, women only spaces for survivors of gender based violence, or in the case of men, maybe a workshop for young boys to discuss frankly their online or consumption habits. Uh, so yeah, to go back to your question, I, I do think that a way, a powerful way in which men can engage with issues is to, to work and speak to other men, as well as to be healthy, positive role models for the other men uh, in their life. I do also think that men can do a lot in terms of uh, supporting, mentoring, uh, sponsoring women in their lives, in their organizations, kind of uh, giving visibility to their work and once again uh, call out sexism when they see it. And finally, I think that men, but this applies also to women, <coughs> gender, can do a lot in terms of uh, trying to train themselves to recognize gender stereotypes when they see them, when they are perpetuating them themselves. And I think uh, a simple but quite effective way for them to do it uh, when it comes to stereotypes about gender and leadership is to find themselves uh, an inspirational woman to look to.
Yeah, <clears throat> that's really interesting. And so, what would you? That touches on the notion of men's allyship. Mm-hmm. Um, do you find that to be a controversial topic in the literature, or could you describe briefly what men men's allyship is? And uh... yes, yes, um, yeah, it is a bit of a hot topic. And uh, yes, in the literature, I would say also kind of activist uh, gender equality, feminist spaces. Uh, and once again, I think I probably disagree with some fellow feminist activists on this point. So I think some people would argue that men should get into the gender equality codes to support women, to be to the lives. Uh, because uh, you know, it makes political sense because it's all about reversing social injustice. And obviously, you know, as a matter of principle, I completely agree with that. At the same time, I do think that there's something really powerful about, as I was saying earlier on, conveying the message that uh, it's not about helping women. It's, it's even worse, it's not about teaching women how to fix themselves. It's really about building a world which is fairer and more equal and you know, from which ultimately we're going uh, to benefit uh, all of us. It's about building gender identities which are freer and liberating for us all. It's about uh, telling uh, you know, young boys that uh, if they so wish, they can be, I don't know, a nurse or a stay-home dad or a, a teacher or whatever. And instead, if they prefer being a footballer and going to the park with their buddies, that's okay as well. But whatever choice they make, that doesn't make le- them less of a man. Yeah, so what, what would you say to the skeptic that might argue that uh, issues of gender are, are fine and people actually want to cling to them? Like, it's, it's you know, if you... if if you talk to someone from my hometown, for example, they say, well, the, South. <laughs> yeah, the, the southern United States uh, and all its glory. Um, it's, you know, if, if you talk to, to men there, they say, well, I would never want to raise my kid in a gender neutral world, world because what it means to be a man is X, Y, and Z. And what it means to be a girl is X, Y, and Z. And therefore, any deviation from the norm is going to be taboo in our in our society or our city or our town, etc. So, what would you say to the skeptic that says, "Well, I don't want to live in a gender-neutral world. I just I think it's quite valuable for you know a, a girl to be a girl and wear pink and and become socialized in that context." Sure. I mean, I'm familiar with objection. I was raised in a Catholic Southern Italy, so. <laughs> in Southern Italy, actually, there is a family natural movement which calls itself anti-gender, which I think says it all. What they mean is that they are anti-gender neutralification, actually, but they phrase it in this very non-felicitous way. But no, anyway, I think, uh, yes, we are going to, to encounter that objection and we need to know how to, to rebut it, how to respond to it. Okay, let me get this straight. I, I personally, feel quite uncomfortable when people say, okay, gender equality work is about, for example, teaching boys about healthy, positive masculinity. Or perhaps it's about uh, training women, training girls to be empowered women. And the reason why I feel uncomfortable with this is that I think it's very hard to pinpoint positive masculinity or positive femininity for that matter. by this, I'm not for a moment trying to say that men can't be great people. Of course they can. But all the qualities which can make them great are really simple, decent human qualities. So being, I don't know, honest, intelligent, hardworking, smart, strong, whatever, 
it's not a inherently masculine or feminine quality. It's a bit like trying to pinpoint positive whiteness or positive straightness. So yeah, I, I do kind of feel uncomfortable with that. I think when we need work with these kind of topics, then uh, either you get once again benevolent sexism, or you get uh, institutions are not really kind of empirically grounded. So people would say, oh, okay, so a good thing about being a man, a positive masculine trait is uh, being a respecter, or being fun-loving, or, I don't know, being good at sports. And I'm like, really? Is that masculine? Aren't we just kind of reinforcing once again gender stereotypes and norms and so on? So, politically and emotionally, when it comes to my own personal life and kind of work I do, rather than talking about positive masculinity or positive empowered femininity or whatever, I just suggest that we should uh, teach our kids and we should teach ourselves to be nice, kind, brave, uh, mutually supportive human beings. However, strategically and tactically, once again, I do understand that we also have to do advocacy work, we also need to negotiate with, to persuade people who are A, from a different generation, B, from a more conservative background, and they find this whole idea of gender-neutral education really threatening. So what I normally do say to these people when I'm trying to work with them is, once again, here we're not talking about depriving people and men of identity traits that are important to them. What we are trying to do is to show to them how much they and everyone else would have to gain from expanding this notion of masculinity or femininity or gender identity a little bit. That, yeah, that definitely that resonates with me. Uh, but where, where do you see, where would you place emphasis for creating this catalyst for change? Uh, and I just say that because, you know, reflecting on my own experience of, of growing up, uh, you know, I, I didn't realize these, these norms of gender were ingrained in me and just basic sayings like that takes balls or man up, you know, like these things reinforce stereotypes that I didn't even recognize until, until we've been chatting or, or, you know, the past year that these are sort of norms that have been ingrained in you and they might not consciously perpetuate gender inequality, but subconsciously they might in terms of day-to-day -day interactions. And so, like, do, do you think, uh, do you, where do you think it starts? Do you think it starts at the family unit? Do you think it starts in, in school? And, and obviously, it, it's all of the above, but, uh, you know, in the workplace or, or for men in position of power, where would you place the emphasis and say we should focus, you know, if you're, if you're a man um, and you want to get involved now, if you're like a millennial guy and you want to get involved, where, where do you place the, the emphasis? Do you say, let me talk to my drunk uncle on Thanksgiving? <laughs> or let me like, try to change the culture in, in my workplace? Or I where, should definitely talk to your drunk uncle on Thanksgiving. <laughs> I think it's really hard to start. You know, the truth is that I think, sadly, there is no straightforward answer to this question. And this one I ask myself every day. Because, you know, I, I am lucky enough to, to work in gender equality organizations, which I was privileged enough to be able to set up. I work with wonderful people, wonderful activists and so on. But, you know, you can't work on everything. You need to make choices, you need to be strategic, you need to prioritize. And the truth is, I don't think there is one specific audience, that one specific line of work, one specific industry that you should be, that we should be prioritizing. Because uh, 
patriarchy or gender inequality, according to you like, uh, as so many other regimes of social injustice, is so sticky, is so pervasive. And you know, we've done amazing progress, but it's, it's probably going to be around for quite a while. So I think the best answer I can give to this is that I think we should all take some time to reflect upon what can be done in our own specific you know, circles of life. So, so maybe in your case, you know, a good way to start is to chat to your own for Thanksgiving, or uh, maybe uh, it is to, to, you know, you mentioned the happiness of the bottom line in the tube, so start a conversation with them and say, oh, by the way, I was recording a podcast the other day, what do you say to this? I think for other people, especially for, for people in position of power, well, they have the, the, the luck, they have the privilege to be able to be role models and to be able to, to promote gender equality and gender inclusivity. In, uh, in the organizations. Uh, I'm not trying to make it more difficult than it is, but I, I do think, well, I do think actually that education is all important. So there's definitely a lot to be said about starting working with the younger generations. And I'm so hopeful because I do see that today's kids are raised in a way which is very different from the way which I was raised and we were raised. At the same time, uh, these kids are not going to be adults for a while, so we can't just focus on them and you know, <laughs> the older generations that they are. So we need to work on different fronts. Yeah, that's... Uh... I, I always think back to just my, my experience in life and say, where, where do you make... Because changing social norms is obviously quite, well, tough, A, first off. But then second off, it takes a lot of time. It does. Um, so, you know, I find it really interesting on, on where, to, where to focus um, and specifically, uh, you know, is it in the workplace? Is it in sports? Um, mm -hmm. Yeah, but then I think in, in, in the kind of work I do, I'm sure this resonates with everyone in the room who works in social justice courses, you know. There's so many days in which we have reason to be depressed about the state of the world and about so again sticky and pervasive, this unfair and just dynamic we're trying to fight against art. At the same time, you know, when when you tell me, oh you know, before having this this conversation with you, I never realized that saying men up was wrong. That kind of gives me hope because I think you start from the little things and uh, we're all in this together. You know, I I'm a feminist, I'm an activist and so on, and I still sometimes enter a room full of girls and I say, hi guys. And you know, so it's about retraining ourselves. It takes time, but it's gonna lead us somewhere. Yeah, that, that definitely makes sense. Well, it's my hope for the future as yeah, well. Um, and, and so just, we have about 10 minutes left. And so just to, you know, we've talked about if men get involved, obviously there's, there's are a number of effects for just uh, trying to perpetuate a more gender equal world. Uh, but we've talked about, you know, if men get involved, then their mental health could stand to gain, uh, uh, economies could stand to gain, um, institutions could stand to gain, uh, et cetera. Um, but, you know, in terms of actually, mean, what does it look like to meaningfully engage, like outside of protests and rallies, uh, what does it actually look like to, to meaningfully engage? Um, I mean, and, and maybe, maybe it's as simple as what we've just been talking about of, of saying something on the tube or something like that. But is, is there a way, if there's someone I listening mean, to the right, podcast... There definitely some kind of more institutionalized and more formalized way of, uh, of doing it. Um, so it, it may only or may let spaces and groups are, are kind of you know, one of those. So you, you might have heard of White Tribune. 
So White Ribbon is uh, um, a male-led charity originally founded in Canada. And what they do is uh, working with male teachers, uh, sport coaches and generally male role models um, to, to prevent gender-based violence. So they work on sexual consent, uh, uh, they work on in trying to foster healthier romantic and sexual relationships uh, between young people. They have a, a British branch as well. Uh, so I think increasingly more so there is an appetite for this uh, um, yeah, for this kind of initiatives. I think, once again, uh, there's a lot to be said about male role models, and a big debate in this world is uh, <coughs> about the role of male celebrities. So many people say that we should get in. Sports celebrities, actors, directors, uh, and so on, uh, um, on board, and uh, because of the influence that they exert, they display on young people. So this has been done in the US, that was a couple of years ago, a campaign uh, uh, against gender-based violence, and uh, Obama and Biden and a um, couple of footballers and basketballers uh, were involved. I think that's tricky in the sense that there's so much attention on celebrities these days, so the moment that one celebrity you have selected is going to do something wrong, which is going to happen because they're human beings, then, I don't know, kind of research shows that precisely because uh, they are so influential, kids tend to think that whatever they do is okay. I was recently reading an, an American piece of research, uh, and yeah, it was really mind-blowing. So it was about uh, how young boys from across different parts of the US and different kind of race, class, uh, background, so their masculinity, their being men, what were the men they looked up to, whether it was uh, men from their family, men, you know, male celebrities and so on. And what I found really terrifying is that whomever they had pinpointed, whomever they had indicated as their role model, they thought that whatever they did, however they related to women, was fine. So you see what I mean? I think there's, uh, we need to be careful there. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And 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 just to, just to wrap up, because gender equality is obviously uh, a, an intellectual issue, but also one that that has deep passions. Do you do you see when you have researched and studied gender equality, and then you look towards the future? Are you optimistic that the world is moving towards a more gender world, equal world, or are we regressing in our in our behaviors and attitudes? So I guess you want me to end on a positive. That is that okay. is. I got my fingers okay. crossed. Yeah. I try. I do my best. Um, yeah, just kidding. I know. If I wasn't an optimist by nature, I don't think I would be in the line of work. Um, I am. Uh, okay, I do think we should acknowledge and celebrate all the amazing progress that you know, gender equality movement, together with so many other civil rights causes, have done in kind of in no more than a hundred years. We should also acknowledge and celebrate the fact that uh, a new wave of gender equality or feminist activism has come up. Uh, there's so many women and men, uh, and people of all gender, my age or even younger than myself, who kind of come together mainly thanks to kind of, you know, um, online tools, new technologies <coughs> and so on, and we're discussing what you know, gender means to them, how they experience it, and what they can do about it. However, while acknowledging and celebrating all this, I think we should always, always bear in mind that Still today, all over the world, and even in kind of you know Western countries in our very uh, civilized Europe, uh, reproductive rights are under attack. 
the women politicians, women in the public space are on a daily basis abused and victimized online. Debt funding to support survivor gender-based violence uh, uh, are being cut. And uh, women and men are still discriminated against, abused, and even killed because of their gender identities and because of the ways in which they perform masculinity or femininity. Uh, so I think we should be mindful of this all. We should be hopeful, but should also be realistic. And yeah, just know that our place is still in the resistance and we should never, ever give up. listen to the SOS Media Podcast. If you enjoyed what you heard here today, please share with your friends, your colleagues, family members, etc. And remember to subscribe to our newsletter. For more information on Gin Pole and the Cambridge Center for Social Innovation, please see the show notes below. And as always, you all are brilliant, so thanks again for listening and helping to get the conversation going around gender equality. So until next time, stay chic out there. As always, SOS Media.